0: I just have one announcement that I'm going to make, and that is about tonight for Epic Teens. So if you're a teen or you know a teen, you're a parent of a teen, uh, grandparent of a teen, whatever. Um, we are having a late night tonight. Uh, tomorrow is uh, holiday from school, so therefore we have a late night. It's going to be game show night. So teenagers, you're going to come and get to participate in game shows, uh, socially distant game shows, of course. Uh, but we are going to do that, and you'll be able to win some prizes and have some fun. And we'll be at the church till about 10. So we start at 5.30, we'll get done at 10. So make sure you know about that if and so you can make plans accordingly. Uh, and that's really the only announcement I have this morning. And now I'm going to turn things over to Mike Stewart who has a few things about missions. Well, you were pretty good at saying good morning. Try it again. Good morning. Good morning. All right. Just a, uh, a practical announcement, the fact that the missions, comedi- comi- missions committee is meeting... This Tuesday at 7 o'clock. And now, from some really exciting news. I know you can't see this, but this is Seth and Caitlin, Natalie and Lauren, and Olivia. They are on a plane today for Papua New Guinea. So that's a prayer request for you this morning. And having said that, Seth sent me a whole bunch of Bible bookmarks that are free for you to take. And I'm going to set some out on the table this morning. And also for those of you who do diligently pray for them, we've got some new prayer cards of theirs with their family on it. So I don't have enough for everybody, but if you are diligently praying for them, uh, you can either see me afterwards, and I'll be glad to give you one. The missions committee has already been set aside some of these. So, uh, But if you are one who loves to pray for missionaries, please see me, and I'll make sure you get one of these. Thank you.
1: I'm not one to tell jokes, so I'm not going to kill the time with such a thing. So, sorry, no. I heard they won. Yay! That's all the enthusiasm I can muster for that. Sorry. <laughs> so people are coming on in. I think we will go ahead and get started. I'll pray, and uh, that will take up some time as well. But we need to talk to the Lord and ask for his blessing on what we're doing here this morning. So would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the opportunity again to be together in this place. We're grateful for the ways that you have connected us and that you continue to hold us together. Thank you for the technology that we have so that those who need to stay at home can stay at home and still uh, receive the benefit of your word and still access... Uh, and stay connected to the the goings-on of this body so thank you for the ways that we're connected that way too father you've cared for us well we praise you for the good things that you've been doing in the midst of hard times and difficult choices and we are thankful that you have been with us through it all and we can count on you to continue to be with us no matter what comes so this morning we want to express our faith we want to listen to your word We want to listen with hearts that are seeking to trust you and are seeking to obey you. We want to receive your word gladly, joyfully even. We want to respond to your word with faith and repentance where it's needed. So would you help us to trust you? Would you build our faith this morning as we listen to your word? Would you speak clearly to each one of us? We're all in different spots We all have different issues and challenges and struggles that we're facing right now and you have the great wisdom and the great power to meet each one of us where we are and we're so thankful that you can do that. Father, would you speak powerfully this morning? Carve away the hard places that remain in our hearts. Dig in there and shape us and mold us and continue to conform us into the image of your Son. We want to be more like Him in the way that we live. We want to be like Him in the ways that we respond to the world around us. And we want to be a people full of hope this morning. And so would you fill us up with hope, something only you can do? Give us eyes that look beyond the physical and see the good work that you're doing so that we can be full of gratitude, full of joy, full of praise, and full of hope. Thank you for this time we have together. Give us ears to hear your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we come to the middle-ish of the book of Habakkuk. We've already heard some about God's judgment, and we'll continue along that theme to some degree this morning. But it's interesting to think about how God's judgment, as it's announced against the wicked, against unbelievers, is really an announcement for God's people. As God brings His condemnation and His judgment against the wicked, He is also proclaiming judgment for God's people. It is good for us to know that God is just and that He judges the wicked. But when we come to as passages like Habakkuk 2 that we're looking at today the question needs to arise in our minds how should Christians respond to passages like this passages focused on announcing God's judgment against unbelievers should we read them with an attitude that says glad it's them and not us or should we read them saying without God's grace that's what I would be guilty of and that's what I would deserve Or should we read them remembering God sent Jesus to pay the penalty for my sins, to endure in my place the condemnation that I deserve? Or should we read them as a warning, a reminder of the danger of sin, which God intends to use to keep us walking in faithfulness and obedience to Him? Or should we read them as an encouragement to keep trusting God, confident that He will set all things right ...that His perfect justice will prevail. There's probably some truth in all of these approaches. We'll address the broader and more important question... ...of how Habakkuk's original audience should have or would have... ...received the words of judgment that take up the bulk of chapter 2... ...of this prophetic book in just a few minutes. And we'll need to let his let their position shape our thinking to some degree. But here at the outset... I want to emphasize one way we must not read these kinds of passages. Inevitably, when we recognize that this passage is targeted against Babylon, aimed directly at the enemies of God's people, we will be tempted to ask the question, who are the enemies of God's people today? And we will be tempted to think of this judgment as targeting a particular group of people. We must resist the temptation... To turn these announcements of judgment against the Democrats, or against the socialists, or against the leftists, or against Antifa, or against big tech. We must resist the temptation to apply these announcements of judgment against China, or against Russia, or against North Korea, or against Iran. We must resist the temptation to point these announcements of judgment against individuals like Joe Biden or Kamala Harris or Bill Gates, or Nancy Pelosi. Instead, we must recognize the reality that these announcements of judgment apply to all of these groups and individuals just as much as they apply to Donald Trump and all other guilty sinners in this nation and in this world. We also need to carefully consider whether and how they apply to ourselves. One of the most fascinating features of the passage we're looking at today is how it's generically focused. What I mean is that these five woes, these five announcements of God's judgment, are not explicitly stated to be against Babylon or against the Babylonian king, even though that's surely who Habakkuk and his original audience would have been thinking of. Rather, they are worded generically described in terms of an individual wicked person who is guilty of certain kinds of sin. The nation of Babylon is being poetically spoken of, personified as an individual. And the sins highlighted here are literally sins that any one of us could be guilty of. But these literal sins are being used as a figure of speech to describe the crimes of Babylon as a nation. These words are Habakkuk the prophet's words, part of his application of God's response to his two protests, especially the second one, which Pastor Ken helpfully unpacked for us last week. Habakkuk now understands that God's judgment will come against Babylon, the enemy of God's people, even as it is right now coming against Judah, God's own people. These announcements of judgment against nations are intended to be words of hope for God's people. Though the judgment of Babylon will come, salvation through the judgment of Babylon will come salvation for the remnant. Habakkuk is specifying and crystallizing how and why God is going to judge and punish the nation responsible for destroying Judah. And he's telling this to the people of Judah, even before these crimes are committed. As we look at this passage, we need to recognize the larger biblical understanding of Babylon. It's not just that empire made famous and powerful, largely under the leadership of King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of the 600s BC. Babylon is also depicted in Scripture as a representative of all guilty nations. Babylon is the original wicked city, as depicted in Genesis 11, when its citizens built a great tower in an attempt to demonstrate their own greatness. And Babylon is the final wicked city, as depicted in the book of Revelation. Usually, Babylon is set opposite of Jerusalem in Scripture. But in Revelation, we find Jerusalem to be associated with Babylon. And in other places in the New Testament, we find Rome to be associated with Babylon. Ultimately, we should recognize that the Bible puts all nations throughout history as part of Babylon. And that has to include the nation in which we live today. We might be tempted to think that our nation hasn't always been in cahoots with Babylon that surely this is a recent development, a development we're watching unfold. But the Bible does not give us that option. We must recognize that all earthly kingdoms are are now and have always been rebel kingdoms in rebellion against God. Like individuals, some nations are more visibly sinful than others, some nations are more obviously wicked than others, but all nations like all humans, are and have always been since Genesis 3, fallen, broken, and in rebellion against God, even when a nation like ours uses God's name and uses God's word in, to influence its laws in the first place. Now, I know that this can be a jarring and painful recognition, and many may be unwilling to accept it. I won't dwell on these realities throughout the message, but we need to be willing, at least, to look at how our passage this morning certainly fits the current state of our nation today. So, let's begin with the first part of Habakkuk 2.6, where Habakkuk introduces what he's about to do in the rest of the chapter. Going to see him taunting the guilty with woes. Look at Habakkuk 2.6. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him? So first we have to determine who's who here. Who is the him this taunt is to be against? Verse 5 spoke of one who gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. From the larger context, this is a personification of Babylon. Who are all these who will taunt Babylon? Babylon. From verse 5, again, the most obvious referent would be all nations and all peoples, but we can probably be a bit more precise. Habakkuk's central contrast in the key verse of the book, chapter 2, verse 4, is the righteous man versus the puffed-up unrighteous man, the wicked man of chapter 1, verse 13. The wicked man represents Babylon throughout the book, while the righteous man represents the faithful remnant of the Jews who are about to be victims of Babylon's violent wrath. However, this reference to all nations and all peoples in verse 5 will be drawn on in verse 8, but he'll use the phrase, the remnant of the peoples. These connections hint at a major thread that runs through the Old Testament, a thread that gets bigger and plainer in the Old Testament prophets. The remnants of God's people will consist of believers from all nations, not just from the Jews. On the other side of God's judgment of His people, when God's people are restored, His remnant of faithful people will be Jews and Gentiles together, and it is they who will have the right to speak this taunt. What we are about to look at is a series of woe oracles. But here the whole section is characterized as a taunt with scoffing and riddles. These are wisdom words found in the book of Proverbs. But the idea here is that the victims of Babylon's oppression will emerge victorious in the future. That's the main point. Telling the Jewish people ahead of time is supposed to encourage them and enable them to endure the suffering that's coming. A similar taunt against the king of Babylon was recorded for the people of Judah about a hundred years earlier in Isaiah 14, verses 3 to 20. It begins like this. When Yahweh has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. Now, some folks believe that this taunt shifts in Isaiah 14 to describe the fall of Satan. But I see no reason in the text to draw that conclusion. Rather, we have exactly the same thing there that we have here in Habakkuk 2, a poetic condemnation of wicked Babylon, focused on the sins of their wicked human leadership, perhaps in particular King Nebuchadnezzar himself. In Habakkuk, this taunt is also characterized as scoffing and riddles. This gives us a heads up that we're about to read some intensely poetic material, and the message will take some work to figure out. Since Habakkuk is writing this before the Babylonians invade Judah, the vague and figurative language may be a way of concealing from the invaders the clear announcement of their doom. What unfolds is a series of five woe oracles, and we'd better clarify what this word woe means. These sayings ...are the opposite of Beatitudes. So, you're familiar with the phrase, blessed is the man, or blessed are you. This phraseology appears both in the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament... ...most famously, perhaps, throughout the Psalms... ...and as the introduction of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. I've argued that these kinds of sayings are the ancient equivalent of saying congratulations... ...when someone is experiencing really good circumstances... The word blessed is a positive assessment of circumstances without directly commenting on how those circumstances came about, whether you earned it, whether you were given a gift, or whether God did something spectacular. It means simply, you're in a good spot. Woe is the opposite of that. It's the language of negative assessment. It means simply, you're in a bad spot. Now, the way the prophets in particular use this language is most often to pronounce God's condemnation on sinful people. The woe is the announcement of God's punishment, and it usually includes an explanation of why the particular punishment is deserved. It's appropriate for Habakkuk to lay out these five woes, these spirit-inspired woes against Babylon, even as God is raising them up giving them success in their imperial pursuits, because God's people will benefit from these vivid pictures of their doom. Even though God is currently prospering their efforts, even though God is currently allowing and enabling them to conquer the world around them through very violent and wicked means, God will hold them accountable for their wickedness. In the meantime, as the suffering comes to the Jews, Habakkuk is calling them to join him in waiting for the fulfillment of the vision, to trust God's promises, and to celebrate God's justice in the world. So let's look at the first woe. Woe number one, the plunderer plundered, verses six through eight. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoil for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. The first woe uses financial imagery, but it's unclear exactly what's being described. If you're comparing Bible translations, where the ESV has the word debtors in verse 7, some versions have the opposite word in English, creditors. The language is ambiguous, but the point is clear. Babylon is being depicted as financially oppressing their subjects, which would have happened through a number of ways, whether unfair taxation Forcible removal of property or exorbitant interest rates through the banking system. The main point of the woe is verse 7. The victims will rise up in rebellion and then you will be spoiled for them. This is elaborated in verse 8. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. Now at several points in this prophecy, Habakkuk describes the destruction or overthrow of Babylon. And I was curious to think about how this connected with what actually unfolded historically. The fall of Babylon is prophetically referred to several times in Scripture, but the event is described in historical literature in the Bible in only vague detail. But exploring the history here is helpful to think about the way we should understand the fulfillment of biblical prophecy more generally. This woe seems to suggest that Babylon would be overcome by the rebellion of its subjects. But that is not at all what happened. Only in the loosest sense can we take this literally. Remember, this is a prophetic taunt, a mockery song. The point is that former victims will become victorious. The Medes and Persians were responsible for overthrowing Babylon. But the Medes and Persians were not subjects of the Babylonian Empire. Rather, they were growing their own rival empire alongside the Babylonian Empire. But there is an appropriate connection here. The Medes helped Babylon Babylon rise to to power in the first place. The Medes were partners with Babylon in their plundering. But it would be the Medo-Persian ruler Cyrus whom God would raise up to conquer the weakened Babylonian empire ruled by the puppet king Belshazzar in 539 B.C. That brings us to another crucial point to remember. As verse 8 states, Babylon was guilty of violent bloodshed in their plundering, including violent bloodshed of God's people. And this violent bloodshed was God's means of bringing judgment against the wicked Jews. Compare the wording here, because you have plundered many nations, with Jeremiah's words. In Jeremiah 27, verses 5 and 6, spoken to the kings surrounding Judah just a few years after Habakkuk's words here, Yahweh says, through Jeremiah, it is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and animals that are on the earth, and I give it to whomever it seems right to me." Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. This is that uncomfortable but inescapable truth from the scriptures repeated so frequently. God gives nations and rulers, people and territory. God determines who rules and who is ruled, by whom, in every nation. Every time there is a leadership change, every time there is a transition of power, whether peaceful or otherwise, whether contested or otherwise, it is God who is overseeing the changes. At the same time, the wicked leaders involved will be held accountable for their wickedness. Let's look at the second woe. Woe number two. The schemer shamed. Verses 9 through 11. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. The word schemed actually comes from verse 10. It's translated devised in the ESV. The point here is that the schemes of Babylon will ultimately result in shame for Babylon. Babylon's intentions were to exalt itself, to become untouchable, unopposable, There's a clever Hebrew wordplay in verse 9 that most English translations don't make clear. The sin in view is evil gain, and the motive driving their evil gain is literally to be safe from the reach of evil. Notice also that Babylon's goal was gain for his house. But the judgment is that Babylon will be receiving shame for your house. The word house is being used here figuratively, It's depicting the empire as a house. And in verse 11, he makes much of the physical aspect of that imagery. This sinful, prideful, self-exaltation is exactly what was depicted in the taunt song against the king of Babylon in Isaiah 14, verses 13 and 14. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Famously, these verses are sometimes taken to refer to Satan's original fall or rebellion. But again, I see no reason to go there. There's plenty of archaeological evidence that shows throughout the literature of the ancient world that ancient kings commonly boasted with words just like these. And certainly Nebuchadnezzar was one such king. God will judge this kind of prideful self-exaltation with shameful humiliation. Simply contrast the worldly greatness of Nebuchadnezzar described in chapters 1 to 4 of Daniel with the shameful end of Belshazzar in Daniel 5. That line at the end of verse 10 is chilling. You have forfeited your life. I was reminded of Jesus' warning In Mark 8, 36, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire sought to gain the whole world and certainly amassed a powerful empire. But their condemnable wickedness faces the judgment of God, and the king and all his people find that they've lost everything. Look again at verse 11. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Here in the house of that Babylon is built, the building materials, the stones of the walls and the wooden pillars or the rafters protest as witnesses against Babylon that came literally from the wall of the king's palace. Consider Daniel chapter five again, the actual Narration of what happened as the Babylon fell. Daniel 5, 5. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. You remember the story perhaps. Daniel had to be summoned, called in to interpret the message from Daniel's God. And the message written on the palace wall was directed to King Belshazzar. And to summarize Daniel's interpretation from Daniel 5, 26 to 28, it meant, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting, and your kingdom is divided and given by God to the Medes and Persians. But I'm also reminded of another occasion where stones are said to cry out or to protest. On Palm Sunday, as Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, People were praising Him and acclaiming Him, seemingly as the Messiah. Some of the Jewish leaders heard these praises and told Jesus that He needed to silence His disciples. Do you remember Jesus' reply to these Jewish leaders? Luke 19.40 records it for us. I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now, typically, I think we read those words as simply saying something like, The praises of the Messiah must come. And if people won't do it, then inanimate creation will give him the praise he deserves. But if Jesus is quoting or alluding to Habakkuk 2.11, his reply takes on a much more significant meaning. Jesus is defending the propriety of his disciples praising him. And at the same time, Jesus is, is condemning the Pharisees Refusal to welcome and praise Jesus. The stones would not then be crying out simply as a fitting replacement for people's praises, because biblically it's not fitting replacement. Rather, the stones would cry out in protest, in judgment, in condemnation against people who attempted to stop the rightful praise of the Messiah As in Habakkuk, where the stones of the Babylonian king's palace witness the evil of the Babylonians and protest and pronounce judgment, so in Luke's gospel, the stones of Jerusalem witness the evil of the Jewish leaders and protest and pronounce judgment. This may also be an indication, which pops up several times in the gospels, that Jerusalem and the Jewish leadership of Jesus' day should be considered as pagan Gentiles. The old saying is shown true yet again. It's one thing to get the Jews out of Babylon, but it's quite another to get Babylon out of the Jews. So now at the third woe. Woe number three, the maker unmade. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from Yahweh of hosts that people's labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. This is the central woe of the passage, the centerpiece of the passage. Two woes on the front, two two woes on the back end. In verse 12, Habakkuk is borrowing from the earlier prophet Micah, who said almost the exact same thing in condemnation of the Jewish leaders and Jerusalem. Micah 3.10 speaks against those Jewish leaders as those who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Here, Habakkuk presses home the familiar tension of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Woe to the one who builds with bloodshed and wickedness. But isn't this too from Yahweh, the ultimate commander of both heavenly armies and earthly Armies, Yahweh of hosts. Who's the builder here being condemned? We could think of Babylon as an empire, but we could also think more personally about King Nebuchadnezzar, the king responsible for establishing the great empire. Remember Nebuchadnezzar's own words, recorded for us in Daniel 4.30. Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power, As a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. Perhaps you remember what happened immediately as he concluded that sentence. A voice from heaven pronounced condemnation against him. And then we read in verse 33. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers. And his nails were like bird's claws. And of course... This was in fulfillment of the prophetic dream he had already received as a warning from the Lord, interpreted plainly by Daniel about a year earlier. Nebuchadnezzar would receive mercy from Yahweh and experience a brief restoration to sanity and to power, but that humbling judgment was a foreshadowing of the later ultimate fall of the Babylonian empire he took credit for building. We could also rightly extend the application of this woe and the others to our own nation, the builders or founders of this nation. Wasn't this nation formed through the violent plunder of the people who already lived here? Wasn't this nation built through the wickedness of slavery? Wasn't there a heavy dose of economic exploitation and greed involved as the colonies were settled. For those who want to maintain the image of a founding of the United States as some kind of Christian nation, can I issue a gentle warning? Beware of reading history selectively, ignoring the wickedness that was rampant in the background and the mixture of motives that was plain, that is plain in a full reading of the founder's writing. And beware of assuming that the success of the American Revolution and the founding of this nation says anything about God's approval of what the people or the leaders were doing. Remember, God granted success to the Babylonians, but He also condemned their idolatry and wickedness. The final end of Babylon is described in Habakkuk 2.13 showing that it is indeed from Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Israel. The raising up of empires, the raising up of rulers, and also the bringing down is all determined by the Lord. It's from the Lord. Habakkuk says that people's labor merely for fire, that individuals and governors and nations work so hard for things that will only be burned up in God's fiery judgment. Verse 14 is the main positive message for God's people out of all these woe oracles. We'll come back to a fuller exploration of its significance at the end of our time. But for now, just notice that as one writer summarizes, instead of being polluted with blood, the earth will be permeated with glory. Let's press on to the fourth woe. Woe number four, the intoxicator intoxicated. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in Yahweh's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them for the blood of man and violence to the earth and to cities and all who dwell in them. This is probably not to be taken literally as a literal condemnation of Babylon making their captives get drunk so they could take advantage of them. Instead, again, we're seeing a vivid image of the wickedness of Babylon, their abusiveness toward their captives and their subjects. The picture in Habakkuk is as ugly as it gets. Babylon is depicted as getting their neighbor nations drunk in order to rape them. Or at least in order to watch them make fools of themselves. So what's the appropriate punishment? Babylon is going to be intoxicated by God. The key line is, there at the beginning of verse 16, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. And then repeat it at the end of verse 16 as utter shame will come upon your glory. The word for utter shame here suggests the literal image of vomit. One writer summarizes well saying, The force of the figure here yields a picture of one who is so overcome with drink that in his drunken stupor he lies naked in his own vomit. That's the picture of God's judgment of Babylon. However, it is interesting to notice how drunkenness literally played a role in Babylon's judgment. We've already glanced at Daniel 5 and considered the famous handwriting on the wall announcing God's judgment against Belshazzar in Babylon. Recall the setting of that event from Daniel 5, 1 to 4. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood and stone. That phrase in verse 2, translated when he tasted the wine, could be translated more literally as under the control of wine. In the context of this drinking party, the shame replaces whatever glory there was of the Babylonian empire. Babylon is... Also portrayed here in Habakkuk 2 as pouring out wrath against, un, against neighboring nations. We're used to hearing about God pouring out His wrath. But this is a unique reference to a nation doing so. And this is where we remember the Lord's response to Habakkuk's first protest. The Lord was raising up the Babylonian empire as the tool of His, God's wrath the means of His pouring out wrath and judgment against His own people, Judah. In fact, Jeremiah 51.7 depicts Babylon as the Lord's cup of wrath against the nations. Babylon was a golden cup in Yahweh's hand, making all the earth drunken. The nations drank of her wine, therefore the nations went mad. Later, Habakkuk says the cup of Yahweh's wrath will be passed around for Babylon to drink. Yahweh's tool of judgment must be judged as well. All of this drunkenness imagery points to the literal reality of Babylon's violence. Going back to Habakkuk's protests, Judah was guilty of great violence and Babylon was worse. But God had chosen to use the violence of Babylon to punish the violence of Judah. And here, he's announcing that Babylon will likewise be punished for their violence. Lebanon may be a figurative reference to Israel, but more likely, it may be referring to the way Babylon utilized the famous forests of Lebanon, using their cedar trees to construct its palaces, war machinery, and temples for their gods. The trees of Lebanon are figuratively brought into the taunt song against Babylon in Isaiah 14:8 as well. The Cypresses rejoice at you, the cedars of Lebanon saying, Since you were laid low, no woodcutter comes up against us. At the end of Habakkuk 2, 17, we have a curious, exact repetition of the words of verse 8. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. In the context of this fourth woe, it becomes a bit clearer that the violence Babylon is guilty of is not just violence against people but also violence against creation, including animals and trees. It seems that God will hold human beings accountable for how we treat non-human created things. The final woe is shaped differently. The pronouncement of woe is delayed. And instead, verse 18 opens with a rhetorical question. Look at verses 18 to 20. Woe number five, the idolater idled. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. But Yahweh is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. This kind of condemnation against idolatry is common in the prophets. Most famous, perhaps, is Isaiah 44, 9-20. As the climactic woe oracle, Habakkuk suggests that Babylon's idolatry is the root of all their other evils, all their other sins. The problem is the issue of trust. See the second half of verse 18. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. The condemnation here is dripping with irony and sarcasm. But the most profound contrast is to be recognized in the issue of trust. To really capture the mocking tone of Habakkuk, the second half of verse 19 could be paraphrased this way. It teaches, look, it is gold and silver and full of breath. Oh, there isn't any of it. As the Lord told Habakkuk in 2.4, the righteous person is to live by his faith, his trust in Yahweh, the God of Israel. Yahweh alone is to be trusted as God, as Savior, as Lord. The foolishness of the Babylonians' idolatry is on display in the early chapters of the book of Daniel. With regard to Nebuchadnezzar's first dream, all the wise men, enchanters, magicians, and astrologers of the kingdom only had recourse to consult their idols, to consult their dream interpretation manuals, to figure out how they could cut open a goat and read its liver to determine answers to their questions. Or they could roll their dice and see how the images would fall, and they could then decode the message. Daniel went to Babylonian public school and university. He got his PhD in Babylonian religion. He aced all the tests, got all the right answers about how these things were supposed to work in the idolatrous worldview of Babylon. But Daniel knew the truth. As Habakkuk puts it, idols can't speak. Idols can't teach, and idols are not alive. Habakkuk and Daniel both proclaimed the truth ever so clearly. Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the only true God. He is a revealer of mysteries. Said differently, the real God speaks. Well, to conclude this morning, we need to consider, in the midst of all this announcement of judgment, the ultimate hope for God's people. It's here in the passage... As we wrap up this morning, we need to look at verses 14 and 20 closely together. As I said earlier, these woe oracles are focused on God's coming judgment against the Babylonians, but they are spoken to God's people, and they are for the benefit of God's people, both to the Jews in Habakkuk's day, the faithful remnant of Jews, and also to us in our day. Our ultimate hope is not merely the judgment of our enemies, the judgment of the wicked, Rather, our hope is found in the positive promise of God's glory being known and experienced globally. But let's begin with verse 20. But Yahweh is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. In contrast to all the idols we might produce for ourselves, all the false gods we might give our allegiance to, Yahweh, the only true God, is in His holy temple. This is surely a reference to heaven rather than primarily focusing on the temple in Jerusalem. Habakkuk may even be quoting a Psalm of David, the first part of Psalm 11:4. Yahweh is in his holy temple. Yahweh's throne is in heaven. As much as Habakkuk has felt confident in his appeals and protests to God in this book, here he has come to a settled confidence that no more words are needed. We all need to come to the place in our legitimate protesting to God, but not about God, where we shut our mouths, stop fretting, and truly, trustingly rest in God's sovereign rule over our lives and over the world. Similar counsel is provided in Ecclesiastes 5.2. Be not rash with your mouth and let your heart be hast- let not your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Look again at verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. First of all, what is the significance of the promise of God's glory filling the earth? Several times in the Old Testament, God's glory is spoken of as filling some particular place. And every other time, it has to do with God's glory filling the tabernacle or the temple. Consider Exodus 40, verses 34 and 35. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. Likewise, consider 1 Kings 8, 10-11. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of Yahweh so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of Yahweh filled the house of Yahweh. Notice in both of these cases how God's glory drove people away. Moses couldn't enter the tabernacle, and the priests could not enter the temple. What's the point of this observation? Habakkuk is announcing a day when God's glory wouldn't merely fill a tent or a temple. There will be a day when His glory fills the whole earth. This is one piece of biblical data that helps us see that the goal of creation was always that the whole earth would be God's temple. God's dwelling place, God's plan from before the foundation of the world was to create a place where he could dwell forever with his people. And that place was not to be limited to a temporary tent or to a particular building. Rather, it was always intended that God would dwell with his people all over the world. Now hold tight, friends. The rest of this message could prove dizzying. Habakkuk specifically says that it's the knowledge of Yahweh's glory that would fill the earth. Habakkuk is probably quoting and adapting words from Isaiah's prophecy, specifically Isaiah 11:9, where we read, "They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea." This points to a time when the earth will be filled with people who know Yahweh, who have an intimate relationship with Him. Do you remember the context of Isaiah 11, 1-9? Verses 1-5 through announced the coming of the Messiah, who will make this intimate relationship a reality and whose judgment will eliminate from the earth all those who reject the knowledge of Yahweh. Isaiah eleven one to five. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. And his delight shall be in the fear of Yahweh. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor. And decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. This is a prophetic description of the Messiah, the great descendant of David and Jesse, Jesus. He lived a spirit empowered human life, completely pleasing his heavenly Father. Then the prophecy describes his coming judgment with language alluded to in Revelation nineteen twenty-one to describe the rider on the white horse slaying the wicked by his powerful word. That fact has led many interpreters to conclude that the next paragraph in Isaiah 11, verses 6 to 9, describe the millennium, which immediately follows the arrival of Jesus on the white horse and his execution of the wicked who are alive when he comes. Take a look at Isaiah 11:6-9. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze; their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. Thus many students of Scripture have seen these verses as a literal description of the circumstances of the millennium. However, the book of Isaiah points to a different ultimate fulfillment. The first two lines of verse 9 that we just read twice are repeated verbatim at the end of Isaiah 65:25 which is a conclusion of a paragraph where Yahweh has revealed to Isaiah the nature of the new creation, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven after the millennium, not during. Look at Isaiah 65, 17, the beginning of that paragraph. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. So, with this in mind... The ultimate fulfillment of Habakkuk's great prophecy will come with the arrival of the new creation. But as with most fulfillment of most Old Testament prophecy in the New Testament age, there is an aspect of the prophecy already being fulfilled right now, which shouldn't surprise us when we see that the Spirit-empowered Messiah is the one who brings this reality into being. It's the work of Jesus in his first coming that establishes all that is necessary to bring this reality into being, to bring the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy. In another interesting connection with the book of Daniel, we read there of something filling the earth. We pick up uh, Nebuchadnezzar's first dream. You'll remember it well. We read there of this great statue composed of different metals and substances. But in that dream, if you remember, Nebuchadnezzar saw something else beside the statue. We pick up Daniel's description of what King Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream in Daniel 2, 34 and 35. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold, all together... Were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Before we pick up Daniel's interpretation of this part of the dream, notice a crucial but often overlooked detail. The stone smashes the feet but destroys the entire statue. Though each section of the statue represents a different historical empire throughout human history, one after the other, they are also viewed as one conglomerate whole, so that when the stone destroys the final empire, it also destroys all the other empires, even though historically those individual empires are already gone off the scene. My point is that the statue represents more than merely a succession of human empires. It also represents all human kingdoms throughout human history. Now, listen as Daniel explains the imagery in Daniel 2, 44 and 45. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut out from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. The stone represents God's kingdom the final kingdom that overcomes all earthly kingdoms. When is this fulfilled? Initially, we might think of Jesus' second coming and the inauguration of the millennium. But we need to listen to Jesus as he refers to this passage and let his interpretation govern ours. Jesus alludes to the image of the stone of God's kingdom crushing all other human kingdoms as he applies his parable of the wicked tenants to the Jewish leaders. Jesus depicted God's kingdom there as a vineyard, which God had hired the Jewish leaders to tend. God then sent prophets to the leadership to collect the good fruit from the vineyard that rightly belonged to him. This represents the prophets who summoned the Jewish people to repent and return to faithfulness to God throughout their history. The Jewish leadership consistently rejected their message and became increasingly hostile to those God sent to them. Then God sent His Son into the vineyard, since they would surely recognize their responsibility to treat the Son with honor and respect. But they murdered Him. They they murdered Him And the Jewish leaders are listening to Jesus tell this parable. And at first, as they hear this going on, at first they don't realize that Jesus has depicted them as the wicked servants. They rightly recognize that the wicked tenants in the story ought to be judged. And God ought to give the vineyard to other tenants. Ironically, Jesus gets them to condemn themselves here. And then Jesus presses home the point ...by explicitly quoting Psalm 118, 22 and 23... ...and making it clear that the son in the parable... ...was the rejected stone of Psalm 118... ...and the wicked tenants are the builders of Psalm 118... ...who rejected the stone. Finally, in Matthew 21, 43 and 45... ...the conclusion of this parable... ...Jesus alludes to two verses in Daniel... ...and one in Isaiah... ...to show what's about to happen to these Jewish leaders the ones he's addressing. Listen to what he says. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Responsibility for the vineyard, leadership in God's kingdom, is being taken away from these Jewish leaders and given as a gift to a fruit-bearing people. This is drawing on the language of Daniel 7:27. In connection with the Son of Man receiving God's kingdom, we read from Daniel 7, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. The fruit-bearing people are followers of Jesus, the saints of the Most High. Then Jesus adds in Matthew 21:44, and the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. This is a reference to Isaiah 8:14 and 15, where Yahweh himself is referred to as a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Isaiah then adds, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Jesus is the stone, and the Jewish leaders are tripping over Him to their destruction. Then back in Matthew 21, 44, Jesus adds, And when it falls on anyone, it will crush Him. Jesus is the stone, the King who brings God's kingdom that crushes all earthly kingdoms, including the twisted Jewish kingdom of the first century. And in His victorious death and resurrection, He establishes the kingdom. Thus the vision of Daniel 2 and the prophecy of Habakkuk 2, 14 has begun to be fulfilled with the arrival of the king and God's kingdom. And ever since then, the earth is being filled with the knowledge of God's glory as the earth is being filled with people, citizens of God's kingdom who know God and can see and proclaim His glory. Jesus To borrow more imagery from our passage in Habakkuk 2, Jesus stepped up to the table and the cup in Yahweh's hand, the cup of God's wrath came around to him and he drank it down all the way to the dregs. That's what Jesus was asking his father about in the Garden of Gethsemane when he asked him three times to remove the cup. He knew that drinking that cup of poison was going to be painful. There was no other way to save sinners. There was no other way to establish God's kingdom. There was no other way for the glory of the Lord to fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. God's wrath must be satisfied. And every human being on the face of the planet deserves to drink that cup, to face that wrath with one exception. One man lived a perfect life. One man obeyed God always. One man volunteered to submit to the unbelievable task of enduring God's righteous wrath, and he's the only man who ever didn't deserve it. Now that that cup has been drunk, in the place of God's people, sinful people from all nations can know God's glory, and God's glory may fill the earth as He planned all along. Thus, this prophecy Habakkuk 2.14, is being fulfilled throughout this age as Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 4.6 happen to more and more people all over the world. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's the mission, folks. Until Jesus returns, we are to be spreading the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus. And as God graciously turns on the lights inside people's hearts so that they can see His glory, people all over the planet will experience this grand gift called eternal life. What, John, what Jesus described in John 17 as knowing God the Father and knowing Jesus Christ His Son. Is that you this morning? Are you in need of that gift of life? Do you sense yourself waking up to a new awareness, a new vision of who God is, even as you hear the Word of God this morning? You can see the glory of God. It's on display for you in Jesus. Wake up and trust Him. But this ongoing fulfillment of the prophecy is partial and incomplete. The ultimate, final fulfillment will only come after Jesus returns, after the final judgment is pronounced. Paul describes what it will mean for the knowledge of God's glory to fill the earth in Philippians two ten and 11. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Or, more visually perhaps, John describes it this way in Revelation 21. And of course, we must conclude here. Look at verses 10 and 11 as John describes his experience. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Then drop down to verses 22 and 23. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord, God the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. You can see the light of God's glory even today. Look at Jesus dying on the cross for you. Look at Jesus rising from the dead. Conquering and pronouncing judgment against all of his and your enemies. Look at Jesus sitting on his throne at the right hand of God. Ruling over all the chaos of this world and the chaos of your life. See him extending grace. Offering an eternal life full of joy to sinful people who deserve his judgment. Cling to him in faith. Let go of everything else. Woe to the person who would gain the whole world, but forfeit the experience of true life. Pray with me. Father, that is our great passion, or it should be. Would you stir us to look for your glory, to go back and keep looking at the face of Jesus Christ. We need to be changed. We need to be transformed. We need to be conformed to the image of our glorious Savior. Would you... Do that great work as we keep looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We need him so desperately in these days, and we do long for the final completion of the mission. Oh, Father, would you bring it to pass? Send your son on the white horse. We're ready. We're ready. Oh, Father, help us to wait well to wait patiently as you've called us to, to wait with hope no matter what comes before that great event. Give us faith in these days and magnify your glory across the globe. Help your people be faithful to the mission, to proclaiming the gospel, no matter what country they're in, no matter what comes in each of the countries of the nations. May your gospel keep going forth without obstruction. There's no barrier too strong that you cannot overcome. There is no such thing as a closed country to you. So send your word, O Lord. Bear fruit through it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.